0: Because there's a kind of rule of thumb in power systems that you don't want any single, single power plant to be more than 10% of mm-hmm. your total load. So. Um, so for a one gigawatt reactor, you would need at least 10 gigawatts of your grid, and there's very few places um, in, in the whole of the African continent that have grids that big.
1: Welcome everyone to this episode of the AfriNuke podcast. Each time we strive to bring you not easy to get guests on this podcast. Today we have a long time colleague and senior partner Jessica Lovren. Today is um, Valentine's Day and her other name is Lovren. So uh, she has been here before in Nigeria with us for the first Sub-Saharan African Youth Nuclear Summit which held here in uh, Nigeria and she also had a town hall with uh, next year energy uh, highlighting important consideration for a truly good energy mix she's the founder of good energy collective a very special um, organization poised to bring good energy mix to societies across the globe today we have her here with us to discuss on very interesting aspects of trade and technology for emerging nuclear countries. So, without much ado, I would like to go straight into the discussion for today. Dr. Jessica Lovering, good. Um, I've said some bit about you, but I think uh, it would be better you tell us a bit about yourself.
0: Great, well, thank you, Jay, for the introduction. So I've been working in nuclear policy for over 10 years now. Um, I got started, I was doing environmental studies um, in graduate school, and I got really interested in the energy question, particularly around climate change and reducing carbon emissions. Um, And everyone was talking about renewables and no one was talking about nuclear, and that's kind of how I got pulled in. I thought it was a really tricky problem so I ended up going to work at a think tank in California called the Breakthrough Institute, where I led their nuclear work for um, six or seven years before going back to do my PhD, um, where I focused on the use of commercial nuclear technology in as a tool of diplomacy. Um, so this is something the US used to do a lot Um Russia and China do um, do a lot today um, with commercial nuclear technology um, in bilateral agreements and um, the US is starting to get back into the game and we can I'm sure we'll talk about that. And then in 2019, 2020, when I was wrapping up my PhD, um, I started talking with um, different colleagues who were working in the nuclear space in DC. And we were uh, sort of frustrated that there was a lot of bipartisan support for nuclear in US uh, government, but the really you know, ambitious climate movement, which is very youth focused, very, uh, what's the word, successful and ambitious, um, they weren't really engaged on nuclear, but they were getting a lot of action, a lot of legislation moving, a lot of um, attention from policymakers. And so we wanted to start an org that could really bridge that gap, sort of engaging with um, younger climate focused environmental groups around the potential for nuclear and the use of nuclear as part of a broader climate change agenda. Um, as part of this, you know, we were very interested from the start in rethinking how the u.s does bilateral agreements how they do partnerships with other countries around nuclear particularly what we call nuclear newcomer countries so countries that are looking to build their first nuclear power plant and so that's a, a big part of our work of wealth, as well as looking at policies to support those types of partnerships and really trying to get them to look more like partnerships and less like a pure export agreement um, which can sometimes be a little patriarchal or predatory depending on on the countries involved. So looking more at, at, at equitable partnerships between countries around developing civilian and commercial nuclear technologies. I'll
1: well, ask quite a bit about yourself. Our uh, well, The story behind Good Energy Collective and the unique solution that makes it different from its peers. Is there anything like that? Yeah. Uh, it's more like um, bilateral partnerships and stuff like that.
0: Yeah. I think it's something that makes us different because there are a few other um non-governmental organizations working on nuclear in the US, nuclear policy. I think the big difference is we're a little bit more um on the ground focused. So we're engaging with communities that are interested in nuclear, um, state level policymakers, local policymakers. We're also more much more on the political left. Most of the other groups working on nuclear are pretty center or bipartisan, nonpartisan, um, and we're very much on the progressive side. So um very Traditionally, very anti-nuclear political groups in the U.S. at least, um, and Europe. So we're working to kind of socialize nuclear with those groups.
1: Cool. (laughs) And I hope someday they will be more more amenable to getting nuclear into their heads. Uh, Well, what challenges are there, uh, and particularly for emerging nuclear countries, especially with regards to policy? Do you have you kind of outlined any of them and want to focus on them to bring solutions in that regard?
0: Yeah, I think uh, there's lots of challenges, but they've been overcome in the past. So I think something that's important to keep in mind is that besides the U.S. and Russia, every country that has nuclear power started by importing from another country Hmm. or partnering with another country to develop. So it's not unusual In fact, it's quite normal um, to work with another country for your first nuclear power plant. So I think that's, you know, we have experience with that going back to the 1950s. So um, today it's a much more formal process, a much more um, official process. So the International Atomic Energy Agency has um, what they call infrastructure reviews, where they look at, you know, the regulatory bodies in a country, the workforce in a country, the security and safety in a country, um, and and give recommendations on how to get a country ready for nuclear power. Um, They also have this milestones process, which is sort of physical and soft infrastructure that you need in place. So that's, um, that's a lot of the kind of nuts and bolts of what you need to do. But in terms of what the biggest challenge is, I think it's really financing for a lot of these countries that are interested right now particularly for the really large nuclear plants. It's maybe getting a little bit easier as we go smaller in nuclear, but um, you know, financing a multi-billion dollar project is very difficult, particularly if a country or their banks don't have any experience with such a large infrastructure project. And then the other big challenge around financing is that a lot of the, or almost all of the international financial institutions or development banks don't fund nuclear projects currently. And so that's a big source of funding that you might see for hydro or renewables or even grid um, reliability, um, transmission lines that you just don't have access to for nuclear energy.
1: Okay. It's quite unique that uh, the way that we have some unique challenges of financing, that's how we also have some unique opportunities that are there for um, emerging countries Have you kind of um, identified any unique opportunities there are for those who are intending to go nuclear, especially for the new um, entrants or new um, emerging countries, as the case may be?
0: Yeah, I think something that is a little bit more non-traditional that I think is a good opportunity for some of these emerging nuclear countries is to look at the first first build or first deployment of a nuclear reactor being um from an industrial customer or commercial customer so you know for example a place like nigeria has a lot of oil and gas obviously and um those sorts of industrial companies might be able might be more able to finance and it might be more in their just economic interest to have a small modular reactor powering their operations because it's more reliable um, you know, you also get industrial heat out of a project, or you can, for certain designs. Um, so that may be a little bit of a, a different opportunity that um, makes more sense in certain countries, whereas traditionally, you know, the first customer is is the state-owned utility or the state-run utility for a large nuclear power plant. But with smaller nuclear, and particularly with micronuclear, which is under 10 megawatts, yeah that opens up to commercial partners and that may be because of you know government bureaucracy and and all the um, challenges with utilities and their finances are much more difficult um, it might be a faster route to go through a commercial partner for the first project so that's definitely an opportunity mines or another another um, big potential first customer
1: so like there's no micro reactor operational yet but do you have a picture of how long it would take from construction to operation for any micro reactor maybe as proposed by any of these um, new yeah um, yeah startups
0: so once once there the goal is factory fabrication okay. so ultimately it should be like ordering a combined cycle gas turbine um, in the US which is where you place an order and it arrives to you ready to go in about 18 months yeah. um, maybe less similar to you know a wind turbine um, so the actual on-site construction that's needed will be quite minimal. Again, depends on the design. Um, but that's sort of the, the you know, ideal vision of how this would work. Um, in terms of when we'll start seeing these, you know, the first couple projects um, are looking at sort of getting going in the next few years in the U.S. And the thing is, they are so small that we don't have those traditional timescales, even for these first-of-a-kind builds that are going to be, you know, completely custom, not factory fabricated. The ultimate size is is so small, you know, one or two shipping containers that um, it still can be done quite fast, even for the first of a kind. So just a few years, not, you know, 10 to 20 years.
1: Cool. So uh, what's crucial role do international trade and policy play in providing access to nuclear technology for emerging nuclear countries? I know uh, many countries, when they want to go nuclear, they have to consider a lot of um, international um, politics and trade. Like, you know, there, uh, what is existing between China and uh, U.S. When the uh, President Trump was there, there were a lot of sanctions and all that. So when it comes to imagine countries who want to go nuclear, you know, if not for the recent lifting of the ban between U.S. and India, there will still be existing some sanctions or some restrictions. So can you kind of give us a back of the envelope impact? Um, kind of do I say impact analysis of what? Um, yeah. So yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so there's there's only I mean. a,
0: there's only a handful of countries that okay. you could partner with for a nuclear project right now. Okay. So U.S., Russia, China, France, South Korea. That's really it. You know, there's suppliers suppliers um, in other countries. Uh, that um, do components but if you're looking at um, a full you know power plant uh, nuclear reactor those are kind of your only options Um, if you want to do a research reactor australia is also um, but you know so you only have you know five or six countries to choose from and for all of these countries at different stages you're going to need to sign some sort of trade agreement before you can import a reactor now the U.S. is definitely the strictest. Um, the U.S. requires um, a very specific kind of bilateral trade agreement. Um, it's called a one, two, three agreement in the U.S. It's the like code of legislation that it's under. Um, but we say one, two, three agreement. And for the U.S. at least, if you are going to do or import nuclear technology from the U.S., you already have to have a one, two, three agreement in place. And they can take a long time to negotiate and to get approved. Um, so right now, the only country um, on the African continent that has a one-two-three agreement with the U.S. is Morocco. So it will it would take more time. Um, now for other countries like France, Western China, it's more you sign the agreement after you've agreed on a project. Okay. Um, you get those rules in place. Um, so it's a little easier, but it's it's still going to have similar restrictions. Um, but the big thing these for all of these countries um not just the us is that they want to have certain um security safeguards in place before they export a technology so you know they the us use again is is stricter um but even russia and china are going to have restrictions on what you can do with nuclear materials what you can um, do with the fuel what you can do with the reactor Um, To prevent um, nuclear weapons proliferation or just, you know, security issues, more generally theft of material. So those are the main restrictions um, in terms of trade. But um, these are yeah big agreements that take a long time to negotiate. I think a really good example recently is what happened with the United Arab Emirates, um, where they actually had a project go through quite fast. And um, the technology is from South Korea, but the U.S. Uh, had to be involved and had to have a, a trade agreement in place because the technology is ultimately based on a Westinghouse design. Um, and so the U.S. had intellectual property rights. And so they had a say in, in safeguards and security aspects. So, it was complicated, but in the end, you know, I think UAE liked having the U.S. involved. Um, there supplying houses supplier for some components for that project. Um, and that still moved very fast. I mean, you know, from sort of yeah. 2009 to 2019, yeah. getting the project going. So,
1: yeah, I mean, like, there is no doubt there are still underlying kind of um, political and geopolitical undertones. You know, U.S. has to be in good relationship with South Korea for it to approve of its regulatory agency to get the stuff running at in uae and all that so yeah i get that um the agreement has to be uh, there has to be a handshake if that's the right word between the countries for these things to yeah. well. yeah so now um you know nuclear technology globally is being considered a way of um, providing clean energy it's a clean energy solutions provider kind of to different countries and um, how can nuclear technology um, achieve environmental justice and sustainability goals globally?
0: Yeah, so I think the important thing here with the concept of environmental justice is it's really about people, communities, countries, whatever level, having sovereignty and ownership over the decision-making process for their energy system, for their local environment. And so how that comes into play with nuclear is that it does look like a really good option for a lot of places in a way that can partner with renewables or, you know, pair with renewables. But there's a lot of countries that are interested in nuclear, but in, you know, the U.S. and Europe, there's sometimes a feeling of, well, they shouldn't have it, or they're not ready for it, or they should just have renewables. Um, but that really goes against the ideals of environmental justice, which is ultimately the, you know, the local community should be deciding, or the local government kind of energy system they want. So what we're trying to do and is kind of expand the opportunity for nuclear, so expand access to nuclear, so help countries or communities build up the capacity, the workforce, the regulations so that they can host nuclear if that's what they want and then also going with that you know if a place really doesn't want nuclear we don't want to force it anywhere so um, you know there's there's countries that have bans on nuclear they're probably you know not going to have any that's fine Um, they're going to keep burning fossil fuels unless they're blessed with a lot of hydroelectric so sometimes we hear like well you know if the community doesn't want nuclear. You're just going to force it in. No, 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 not at all. But there's lots of places that do want it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so helping them get access, um, I think, is how um, to align the potential of nuclear energy with environmental justice.
1: You know, when you look at um, the configuration of France having more than 70% of electricity generated from nuclear and the surrounding countries like Italy having existing bans and other European countries having some bans on the nuclear, but still by nuclear electricity from France. I wonder how one can reconcile that and uh, looking at some imagined countries that are a little bit small in population, but can actually quickly or expeditedly get nuclear power plants running in in their communities, but may have it like too much to kind of um, use. So they might be able to kind of sell it out to some maybe neighboring more densely populated uh, African countries. It's just like um, a country like Ghana, who are way ahead in their kind of process of getting nuclear power plants in, in Africa, or let me say Sub-Saharan Africa passed from South Africa. So these guys might get the nuclear power plants running, generating about 2000 megawatts. and look at um, Nigeria just close by lacking and really hungry for energy. It could just be another way of like selling it out and then getting the benefits from it. Although there is no ban for nuclear in Nigeria, but the political will and the existing legislation, I don't know, the process is a little bit um, slow. So that could be another way of uh, getting this thing to work. And it brings me to also kind of um, looking at the different technology options that are there. You have been talking about small and micro reactors. Uh, are they really small? And uh, and what are the uh, <laughs> what are the things that um, makes it more attractive to emerging countries? And why would you want to suggest it to a newcomer country if um, there are? And
0: yeah, so let me. Speak to your first point, um, which we do have really good examples from hydroelectric projects of this sort of cross-border sharing of electricity or um, offtake agreements where maybe the hydroelectric facility is in one country, but there's an agreement to sell power to you know, yeah. two or three of the neighbors. We, mm-hmm. we have those sorts of things in hydro. I think that's very doable for nuclear particularly, you know, signing PPAs or agreements for a certain share of the power. That would make the project much more feasible, much more um, economic if you have those agreements in place. With small modular reactors, so the the standard definition for a small modular reactor an SMR is under 300 megawatts. Whereas a typical nuclear power plant today is over a thousand megawatts. The South Korean reactors that were built in UAE are 1400 megawatts each. Um, so that's huge and um, so much smaller. We are seeing kind of a, a lot of designs in the 100 megawatt range. So the physical footprint is much smaller, the power output is much smaller, and this could be particularly more attractive for countries that have smaller grids because there's a kind of rule of thumb in power systems that you don't want any single, single power plant to be more than 10% of mm-hmm. your total load. So? Um, so for a one gigawatt reactor, you would need at least 10 gigawatts of your grid. And there's very few places um, in, in the whole of the African continent that have grids that big. Um, but when you start getting down to 100 megawatts, that's much more doable. And then down to micro reactors under 10 megawatts, that's very tiny. Um, that's like a shipping container or two shipping containers in size. Yeah. Um, in the US, we'd say... 10 megawatts can power, I don't know, 10,000 households. Yeah. Um, it's going to be very different um, in urban context, in industrial context, or in places, you know, certain sub-Saharan African countries have much lower energy consumption um, by household. So power a lot bigger city with 10 megawatts. But it's still much smaller than traditional nuclear.
1: Yeah, it is, it is. And, you know, uh, we're having a session with um, the Motex guy and so a couple of weeks back. From UK and their plan is just to have it like a battery kind of so <laughs> you can plug it and then it works you know. And yeah. and they plan to like have it to multiply. Maybe you could have it in a modular form, maybe like half six units of it. So if you, your need increases, you can add more, like more and more and more. So this makes it a, a little bit more kind of um, adaptable to some need areas or niche areas where their population is increasing or maybe industrialization is um, increasing and stuffs like that. So making it a bit more adaptable to change. Uh, that is upon us in this new uh, millennium. Um, I wanted to like ask you, this small mo- uh, small or micro reactors that you are talking about, uh, what can hinder their build out and uh, proof of technology? And what's the stage right now in US and in other places where this concept is being um, propounded?
0: Yeah, so we have a couple projects looking to do their first of a kind build in the US right now. Okay. Um, planning before twenty thirty for coming online. Right. There's nothing particularly unique about them in terms of demonstration. It's all pretty well known technology. I mean, we've built all these types of reactors in the past, um, and there is also lots of experience with building small modular reactors in the U.S. Navy and navies around the world, and um, have nuclear reactors on submarines, aircraft carriers. So the technology is not new. It's demonstrating it in a commercial um, power plant. And so that's kind of what's right now we're still waiting on that proof of concept. But hopefully we'll have more um, to go on in the next few years as these projects start breaking ground.
1: Ahead of the new scale and Oklo, they are really coming up very, very strong. And I hope that um, they get running quickly so that maybe our president will someday go look at it where it is working and say, okay, yes, please bring this to my country or some other African president will do that. So, and that would be a very big dream come true for us. So, do you have any ideas on the financing options and measures for nuclear energy or nuclear power plant? Because, okay, now. I want to get this thing, maybe I'm a private um, developer. I know some, I think we just get the news recently of uh, U- uh, a UK company opening up the UK government, opening up um, the enabling private people to get nuclear power plants to work in their countries and from concepts to construction and operation. So, but here we still have a lot of government influence hampering or maybe facilitating the process. Any ideas on the financing options and measures to getting these um, small and micro reactors working in emerging countries, as the case may be?
0: Yeah, it's, it's not really different than any other kind of project financing, whether mm-hmm. it's a hydro plant Okay. Um, or hopefully if it's modular, it looks more like financing a gas power plant or a wind farm um, than Hydra, which is, Hydra's, you know, huge infrastructure project, but usually. So there's definitely a role for, um, depending on where the nuclear reactor is coming from, um, for that country's export-import bank, or in the U.S. we have the Development Finance Corporation, which is like a development bank, that can help finance some of these projects and okay. um, in the us they're quite limited in how much money they have but other countries like south korea definitely russia used to probably not the case anymore they can finance large-scale nuclear projects and then hopefully there's going to be opening up some of the international development banks and um, investment banks will be opening up to nuclear in the future, hmm. as all of the countries that sign on to this um, nuclear project COP um, are starting to put pressure on, on these international financial institutions to fund nuclear projects.
1: If it depends so much on these international financial institutions to bring this technology or nuclear power plants to work, why wouldn't it involve them to kind of... Because uh, if you look at renewable energy projects, it's, it's similar, you know, You don't really need to convince them. All you need to do is just provide a business model that makes it scalable and gives them a picture of the profit margin and all that, and the climate contribution it brings. And voila, the whole uh, floodgates of money will be open to you, you know? So uh, why is it not so for nuclear? And nuclear seems to be always wanting to dance to the tune of what is in vogue instead of creating the vote for itself. I know your company is small, general, you know, good energy, you know, energy that is good for the society. But nuclear presents a unique situation. How can our community and how can we convince our government, you know, to see it as every other source of energy that they need to support? And that will actually move our central bank because our central bank is also looking for investment opportunities. They invest in refineries, building out refineries and, you know, adding more carbon to the atmosphere. Why can't it be so for nuclear? I don't know if you have any points in that regard.
0: Yeah, so the the international financial institutions are just have long long been anti-nuclear. And I think a big driver of that is that nuclear programs have been very national um, historically. They're done, you know, by state-owned yep. utilities, state-owned nuclear companies financed by state central banks. And so there wasn't a need for so much international financing of projects Okay. the way there were for smaller projects. and But there's also just uh, a lot of sentiment after, you know, Chernobyl that nuclear projects are just too risky. So there is a movement to to get that change and it's specifically called out in the cop 20 agreement yeah. uh, or pledge to triple nuclear capacity that you know these countries need to put pressure on the world bank on other development banks to change their policies on nuclear but i think what can also help is you know countries coming to the bank saying you know we want to finance this nuclear project we need help this would really you know support our economic growth and make that development case for nuclear projects Mm -hmm. um, to kind of help them see the need for them. Um, The other aspect is that there just haven't been a lot of nuclear projects in emerging economies in the last, you know, 20, 30 years. So they haven't seen that demand. There's a lot of interest now, so that could kind of get them changing their tune. But it's not for lack of time. There's, of course, also just a ton of hypocrisy in these banks anyway. Yeah, uh, so if you look at um, prohibitions on oil and gas development, you know they argue it's a it's a climate case, but then they don't fund these projects. And then when Europe's gas gets cut off, they're you know investing millions, trillions of dollars in their own gas development yeah. and right. asking other countries to ramp up their Uh, exploration, their production of natural gas for Europe, but they haven't been financing it, you know, for the past 30 years. Uh, And so I think helping to call out some of that um, hypocrisy can put pressure on these um, financial institutions to be more aligned with the needs of the countries
1: hopefully when this um, is cleared out from because they always look up to the top you know and the people at the top in nuclear is those advanced and developed countries so when it gets cleared up from there hopefully we can now have maybe a nuclear fabrication company because it didn't take so long before uh, an investor here that all oh, that has a lot of money um made a big proposal to open a solar panel um, assembly plant in Nigeria it was recently commissioned so hopefully if this gets true for nuclear power plants we could start having some people who are interested in fabricating some parts or major components of nuclear power plants somewhere in Africa and It opens up a new hub for nuclear technology development. So it brings me to, as we're winding down in this conversation, once again, everybody, this is Afrinuke Podcast with Dr. Jessica Lovering. On today's episode of the Afrinuke Podcast, we are talking about trade and technology in emerging nuclear countries. As we are winding down, uh, are there any new laws that support international trade and technology transfer of clean energy, nuclear inclusive, and that will make countries become more interested in getting nuclear uh, included in their energy mix, especially the emerging ones, those who are interested in nuclear? Doctor?
0: Yeah, so not international policies, but there is this pledge um, that was announced um, initially by 22 countries at mm-hmm. COP28 in yeah. December um, to triple nuclear capacity by 2050. And it includes a mix of countries. Um, you know, countries that already have nuclear, countries that are interested in nuclear, Ghana um, is a signatory, um, Jamaica. So um, countries, you know, across the spectrum on where they are in having nuclear power. Yep. Um, more countries, you know, they're looking for more countries to sign on to that pledge. Um, but the the goal is that it will um, kind of, uh, it, it calls on countries to invest more resources in developing nuclear, but also in developing partnerships between countries um, to develop nuclear um, and also expand the supply chain across countries. So I'm hoping it's a good um, motivational uh, pledge and also um, countries that sign on Uh, implement domestic policy uh, to help them achieve um, the broader goal of tripling the capacity.
1: Cool. And I hope this brings um, a very good motivation and impetus to governments across the globe to getting nuclear included in the energy mix. As we're winding down in this conversation, what are your thoughts on diversity and inclusion in the nuclear industry, Dr.
0: Yeah, I think, um, well, I think it's very important for nuclear, but I, you know, I think it's very important for every industry okay. um, to have your workforce reflect um, the communities you're serving. Um, and also, you know, there's a new generation of workers coming up in engineering, in environmental fields, and they have different interests. They're very passionate about climate, Um, they want to help their communities. And I think it's really valuable if we can make companies and workplaces that are are very welcoming and inclusive of lots of different backgrounds and experiences, because I think it's very important for the success of the nuclear industry, um, or any, you know, technology to have that really integrated into their business plan, not just, you know, something they write a memo about once a year.
1: right, that's very good. Uh, Doctor, you've been such um, a very passionate person when it comes to Sub-Saharan Africa. And um, the majority of the population of this part of the world are young people. And good enough, your organization focuses on how it can um, use the young minds to develop a new solution for the industry and beyond. Coming up to this level where you are, I don't know if there are any role models because young people want to follow role models and and are you open to mentoring upcoming nuclear professionals and students in Africa?
0: Um, <laughs> <laughs> I wish I had time, um, but there are, you know, there are some good um, programs through International Youth Nuclear Congress that are more appropriate from that with folks in the nuclear industry. Um, I will say it's a very positive time in terms of um, there's a lot of demand for engineers right now in the nuclear sector. Um, There's a boom in in students enrolling in these programs in the U.S. And so it's a very exciting time to be a student um, in nuclear or, or... related new engineering field so um okay hopefully that inspires people yeah
1: sure 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 get that okay so it's been really informative and enriching listening to you you told us about the bilateral agreements financing challenge and the 123 agreement which only morocco is part of and you also told us about a lot about um, local communities getting involved in building out this technology smr's becoming the new solution that can help grids that are not big enough and yeah you've told us a lot about um, the financing and how new countries can get to build out this exciting and marvelous technology that uh, nuclear has come to provide for us. It's been very, very informative and city um, discussing with you today, doctor. And I hope that, um, uh, we will have some other time to discuss with you. So I don't know if you have any last parting words before we call it a day.
0: Um, thank you for having me. It's a great conversation. And, um, if folks want to reach out on, you can find me on Twitter, um, or, uh, Publishing on our website, goodenergycollective.com. Um, so, hopefully, uh, we'll talk again.
1: All right. Thank you very much. And that um, brings us to the end for today. Thank you, everybody. Okay. Have a great day. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Bye. Bye.